welcome to the Social Work Story Podcast. My name's Liz Murphy and sitting opposite me is Dr Mim Fox. Hello there, Mim. Hello, Liz. How are you doing? I'm going very well. And this is an auspicious episode, isn't it? It definitely is. Because we're actually heading into World Social Work Day. I know, it's quite exciting. I'm excited. I love the idea, Liz, that there are all these social workers around the world all of whom are aware that this day is coming. I can see the conga line and hear the music. How are you spending World Social Week Day? Well, I think I'm going to go and spend some time with uh, some of our tribes. I'm mm. going to go to two different uh, districts, different areas in Sydney, and um, spend some time in good conversation with our colleagues. Great. I am going to do something similar. I am also going to go to a forum where our social workers get to talk about the wondrous work they've been doing in the clinical space as well as in the research space as well as in the project space. And it's one day that I just think, be proud, my social work tribe. You are doing amazing stuff. That's exactly right. And isn't it great that we can all kind of, yeah, celebrate it. Absolutely. Tuesday of March. Yeah, it's beautiful. And the theme for this year is promoting the importance of human relationships. I know you knew that. I knew it. I wouldn't have remembered that exact phrasing, I have to say. Right. But I remembered that it was about relationships. So is it completely coincidental that your interview today is doing exactly that? I know. It actually falls really beautifully in line, doesn't it? I reckon. So in lead up for today's episode, I interviewed uh, Jodie Park and Jodie is a private private practitioner and academic uh, who specialises in therapeutic life story work. Mm. Now I have to say that is not an area of my expertise. Is it one of yours, Liz? Absolutely not. But having listened to Jodie talk about it, I just feel so excited about the value that it brings to the work that she's doing. And I'm really keen for people to hear how she explains how she uses it. And then her story afterwards is fabulous. Yeah, it's um, not often that you hear someone talking about a practice uh, so physically that you actually can imagine yourself doing it. And I, I listen to her speak and I think, wow, I'd really love to give that a go, you know, actually be experimental and fun with it. And I'd like to be the fly on the wall when you do that, Mim. To laugh at me, Liz? Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. But shall we listen? I think we should. And I think we should um, just sit with the not knowing space that you and I have and enjoy listening to Jodie uh, speak about something that she really has an area of expertise in, which is fantastic. Great. Let's go. So what I do is therapeutic life story work and it's kind of different to life story work in many, many ways. So life story work on its own is just is kind of the collection of memorabilia for children in care and then it's about, you know, that memorabilia telling the child's story. As you would expect a normal parent to do, collect kind of memorabilia, memorabilia for their children. So therapeutic life story work is a defined kind of practice and it's about, it comes from uh, kind of narrative strategies, I suppose, because it's about the externalization of a story. So, you, and then it's about the kind of giving your child back that story and trauma processing that occurs along with the new version of the story. And it's very, uh, it, it also is um, comes from attachment theory in that it's about a connection. 
and it's about promoting unconditional positive regard between a child and their main caregiver, whoever that caregiver may be. Um, so it's done primarily with children out of home care. It started though with children in residential care in the UK um, and it has kind of evolved and been adapted to, to work in foster care. It's also, it also works really well with children in kin care placements as well. So it's an interesting kind of intervention method because it's one of those things that kind of makes so much sense when you learn about the model, but it's really hard to do in practice. And I really liked your question about if I was looking in, what would the practice look like? Because that kind of question made me think, because what would the practice look like? And how is it kind of, I suppose, how is it uh, internalised, I suppose, by the children who go through this intervention? That's always something that I think about when I'm working with a child. What is my experience of this intervention? But more importantly, what is your experience of this intervention? And then what is the carer's experience? Because there's three of us that sit in the room. So it's an intervention that's always done with uh, three people primarily, the practitioner, the child and the carer. So we have this little triad going on all of the time. And there is this kind of exchange of ideas, but also of information, but also of emotions that occurs during that triad. So there is this kind of uh, interface in terms of this emotional content that's always there. I mean, it fits really nicely with social work practice because it's this kind of, this notion of, of uh, trauma processing that doesn't start with, there's something wrong with you. It kind of starts with, let's think about the systems that impact on you. And let's think about the historical systems as well as the current systems. And let's think about what that means for you as a, as a child, as a kid. And what it means now, what it's meant in the past, yeah. But there, because of the attachment focus, it's also about this understanding, this fundamental understanding that relationships are important and relationships are key for change. And so that's kind of why I like the intervention, because of that attachment kind of focus that really uses a relationship as a change agent, which again is why I think it suits social work practice so well. So it, has a, it is a defined intervention, as I said before. It has a very distinct beginning, middle and end, very distinct stages. So the beginning stage really is uh, about getting to know the child, as you would expect in any ther ther um, therapeutic kind of relationship. There is this kind of getting to know you stuff. But we don't do the getting to know you stuff in the same way as you may do, say, in a counselling relationship. It's very much about also getting to know the carer and it's very much about facilitating this kind of notion of the child and the carer getting to know each other from a different perspective, which is really powerful, especially in situations where there might be some relationship issues between the two because whilst you are facilitating, obviously you want the carer to say nice things about the child, sometimes they don't and sometimes that's really powerful as well but you need to know what to do as a practitioner on how to kind of save the situation if that happens but for the child it's this especially if it's you know I mean therapy to life story work can be done with anybody really but I generally do it from the ages of five to 18 um so if you've got kind of an adolescent who's having a hard time with their carer at that time as what happens with adolescents then really it's really powerful for the carer to be able to say I love you but I don't like you right now and for the child to actually hear that and then for us as a triad to work through that and that actually has happened in the first two state first two sessions I've had 
with some adolescents and their carers. That's kind of a true story. And at the time I was thinking, wow, well, this is intense. This is kind of into it straight up. But it was so powerful. And when we got to the end of the intervention, so the intervention usually is a bit between 10 and 15 sessions. When we got to the end of the intervention, that was the thing that stood out the most for the adolescent, that that was the first time they actually felt like their carer was being honest. So it was really powerful, really powerful. And for the carer, just to be able to say that in an environment where the child was going to listen and hear it was all really they wanted because they wanted, to, they wanted that child to know that they loved them, but they really didn't like them for many reasons, for many reasons. But obviously at the end of the intervention, you would hope that that carer had, would change their view, and, and they did, they did change their view. But, it, you know, it took, some, it took some interesting times to get there. Yeah, so the beginning, sorry, I kind of went off on a tangent. So the beginning is about kind of setting the scene is the way I see it, getting to know each other, kind of working out how are you going to communicate um, how are we going to really promote that notion of this space is about unconditional positive regard and this space is about facilitating respect at all times even if you feel very disrespectful it's about how do we still facilitate respect the middle is where you get into the nitty-gritty it's where you really start to explore the child's history and you always start with whatever whatever generation you can get information on so it's good if you can start with the grandparents then you think about the parents and then you think about them because really you're trying to establish patterns and this kind of intergenerational kind of notion of uh, trauma but also kind of patterns of adversity. That's what you're really doing because then the child knows that the parent didn't treat them the way they did because, they, because it was their fault. The parent had their own stuff that they were dealing with because kids are really smart and they know that everyone has stuff. Yeah, Sometimes they just don't have the language about how to describe that. So the nitty-gritty stage is always interesting and in every kid that I've ever worked with, um, by about session five to six, they want out. They really do want out. They've had enough because it's, you know, the trauma processing um, element of the intervention means that it's really hard work for them. It's not like they can just come and they can play some stuff with me and we have a good conversation and the carer goes, I love you, you're wonderful and everyone goes home happy. You know, it kind of doesn't always happen that way because there has been this really intense kind of exchange of information and emotions that have occurred between the three of us. As the practitioner, obviously, you need to really have some boundaries around what you transfer and your own uh, kind of ethical responsibilities around what you contribute to that triad in terms of communication and that kind of emotional stuff. But, you know, I think that all practitioners need to acknowledge that there is a transference of emotion because there has to be because we're human. So, but we need to be, have insight and we need to know what it is that's occurring at any given time. Yeah. The end stage is the stage where you've explored the, the child, you've explored their family, you've explored their experiences, you've explored everything that you could possibly explore. And the end stage is where we really sum up, we wrap up. And we, because life story work is done on this huge roll of paper, we always walk through the paper. Um, and that is a really empowering session for all kids because it's their work that's illustrated on this paper. And it's a visual representation of the hard work that's happened. It's really lovely, yeah. And then there is always a break and then they get a book and I write them a little story. Well, some kids, I've written a 40-page little book about 
kind of their journey, like what's happened, like what it is that we've done together. I gather up photos, I gather up stories from other people, like there's all this stuff that goes into the book. None of it is a surprise for the child. The book contains the good, the bad and the ugly that's happened in the sessions um, because it's their story. They get editing rights as well, so if I include something in that book they don't like, then I change it because it's their book. Yeah. That's never happened though, actually. I've never written anything that I know of that they haven't liked. And so the last session is always about the book and about a celebration. For all of us, really, because we're finished. just want to say first up the thing that struck me was Jodie's ability to link the theories that were informing her work yeah and why that struck me is I've just come out of talking to a group of students about how we link theory to practice Jodie does it so beautifully the way she talks about attachment theory narrative therapy and systems theory informing that amazing work that she does with the children and the carer don't you think oh absolutely I it always amazes me um, the challenge that both students and experienced practitioners have in articulating theory Mm. and I think it's because it's not the everyday often social workers are put on the spot to suddenly Uh, speak about theory but they're not doing it in their everyday work because they're actually articulating the theory with their practice which is actually what Jodie showed right yes I like how you have just explained that to me but I also love how Jodie's so sure-footed in talking about what's informing her practice because I think that's what I'd like to see more of in our profession I agree. I agree completely. I also really liked how she came, brought it back to relationship as a theoretical base. What about that quote? Relationship as a change agent. Oh, God, I love that. I know. I know. Especially for this year's World Social Work Day theme. So important. And you and I were reflecting on whether, in fact, that was something that we were taught in our undergraduate years. And I think for me, that's been a slow burn for me. I've learned it in my practice that power of the relationship between social worker and client and the importance of that and how that can be the crux of the success of you know the work that they're doing together and I think that was kind of played out in the way that she was talking about the triangle relationship that was going on with child carer and of course a social worker. Yeah, but I I think I kind of want to globalise it a little bit more than that, Liz. Firstly, I agree with you. I don't remember learning about relationship in the way that we now understand it as fundamental to social work practice. I remember thinking about it, learning about it as um, a fairly superficial notion, building rapport, um, making a superficial connection for a final aim or outcome. Whereas I think it has developed over time. So that when we think about relationship in social work practice now, it's not just what you were describing between the client and the practitioner. It actually could be globalised to be the fundamental base to all of social work practice. So if you think about the way social workers engage in research, the way social workers engage in project work, in community outreach, in um, psychoeducation, 
any sphere that you can see social workers practicing, you can now track back to the relationships as being the key ingredient in the success of that work. Um, and I, I really love that World Social Work Day has really taken that to the front this year, taken it on and said that that's fundamental. It was also really fundamental in the uh, International um, Federation of Social Work Conference that I went to in Dublin last year. And I love that globally we're actually embracing where relationship is sitting in our practice now. Mm. Mm. Well said. Well, there was there something else about what Jody talked about that that struck you? I have to say, I was really challenged by what she, why the phrase she used when the the parent said to the child, "I love you, but I don't like you." What was that? Why was that challenging for you? So for me, I loved that Jody was saying that that was really important for the child to hear, that children can hear messages like that, and that that allowed uh, a breakthrough in that relationship in that moment. But for me, I can't help but hear that and think about myself watching a parent say that to a child and being really conscious of the unequal power dynamic between an adult and a vulnerable child. And it makes me deeply uncomfortable, the idea that I love you, but I don't like you is somewhat separated from the behaviours that someone might display. Gosh, well, I'm going to have to put another dollar in my kids' therapy box because (laughs) they certainly were brought up with that concept. And I think, like Jodie said, they got it. Yeah. That there are moments where I'm not going to like you. I will love you unconditionally, like she was saying. But I'm not liking what you're doing right now. Oh, oh that's what you're saying. That's what it? I'm you're saying. You're saying link it to the behaviour. That's right. right. So if, if the parent had said, okay. I don't like what you're doing right now, that to me is a statement about behaviour. But if you leave it at, I love you, but I don't like you, to me, that cuts to the quick. It's just the core and essence of a, who a person is. And for me, I can't separate those things, love and like, in that way. And, and I think this comes back to, Liz, the notion that actually as social workers, we're always people at the same time. So the idea that we would hear anything and everything that's said around us and not have a reaction and not feel emotionally or uh, value um, challenged by what we're hearing, I just don't think that's even possible. Not at all. Not at all. And isn't it interesting that you and I both have a very different reaction to that one statement? Absolutely. And such a small statement, really, but so powerful and so yeah. meaningful. And another thing that you would actually be able to tease out in supervision, good supervision, right? Yes. The, the point that, that kind of struck out for me as well was Jodie's reference to that session five and six. And I think she said that that can often be when people are wanting out. That's right, yeah. And I think that was such an important thing to be raising because a honeymoon period's over, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Now the real trauma work's beginning. And I would love to actually have watched and listened to her work with that resistance to to the deep painful stuff and how she would have worked with that because clearly she did because she then pushed through and talked about the importance of that ending but I guess for me it was a 
really good reminder that sometimes it is deep and difficult work, but you've got to kind of hold in there. It would have been easy to have gone, yeah, okay, yeah. Look, it's too hard. It's the too thing painful. is that anybody who's gone through counselling knows there comes to a point where you are so emotionally exhausted and drained yes. from just going through the process. Yes. And also to be able to talk to the parents about it's important or the carer, it's really important that we hold in here. Yes, that we dig deep now. Yeah. 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 I know that we can, if we get through this... It's actually going to be so beneficial for you and the child. That's but you don't go. You it. do go through a flight, fight or flight response, don't you? Oh God! Like yes, I'm exhausted, yeah. and I yeah. just have to get out of and here. And there now. would possibly a bit of a relief when there was a fail to attend. <laughs> but, That's right. <laughs> hold on, there. Yeah, is what yeah. she was saying. Yeah, I think it's almost a parallel exhaustion, isn't it? It's a parallel. It's an exhaustion for the social worker mm. sitting and holding that space. And an exhaustion for the clients who are sitting there going through the heavy work. Yes. Yeah, so everybody actually has to band together to keep going. Eye on the prize. Eye on the prize. I love it. And Mm. I would have loved to have seen the visual representation that Jodie does with... Oh, I'm in love with this vision. I want to see it. Yeah, yeah. And... um, uh, we will have a website up and running soon and we will be putting links up and that's one of the links that I really want to see, that we have links to a video of a life story work role. That would be so fantastic, Min, because I think sometimes we can rely too heavily on the spoken word. Yeah, I think and so too. And of course too. with children and young people, this visual representation, this 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 therapeutic life work sounds like it's just an amazing way of working with with them and um, yeah. I'd love to see it more and I'm I sure agree. our listeners would too. Yeah and we're going to actually play now a um, case study that Jodie d- describes, a case that she's working with currently and what's really nice about this is that she shows how the visual representation of the role, the physical role, can actually be a really crucial turning point uh, in the work itself. It can, it can really be a vehicle for change. Great. So um, before we play the case study, Liz, I just want to say a couple of notes to our listeners. The first thing is that we've changed any identifying uh, features of the case itself. So even though it is a current case, it's actually um, still maintaining confidentiality and the person is anonymous. The second thing I wanted to say is that it's a story about um, an adult survivor of child sexual abuse. And I'm really conscious that child sexual abuse has been a lot in the news in Australia recently. Uh, There's been a lot going on and there's always going to be some people out there who are affected by the stories that we tell uh, on our podcast. But I think this one in particular may um, be a bit of a trigger for some people and we just want to put a reminder out there to please take care of yourselves. If you know that this is going to be a trigger for you, Feel free to switch off now. We'll see you next time. No problem. No hard feelings at all. Uh, But if you think that you um, can listen to this, then we would really like to have you with us and we'll join you again after the story. So I want to talk about how I have adapted therapeutic life story work to work with an adult. So traditionally, as I said before, this is an intervention that you would use with children. But the adult that I'm currently working with is a childhood survivor of sexual assault and his perpetrator was his stepfather. 
And so he has come to me at the age of 26 with this kind of history that he's only really started to think about himself. So it's a history that he has kind of shelved for a period of time um, because he didn't like the way that it impacted him emotionally. So, you know, after kind of starting starting a relationship with him as a, as a kind of practitioner during, a, you know, a generalised counselling intervention it became very clear to me that it that really his story was about more than the sexual assault as it often is but his story was kind of stems back to his experiences of being a child and being a really vulnerable powerless child and about how that has kind of shaped him to be the person that he is now and the kind of um impact that it had that has had on his whole psychosocial kind of being so I spoke to him about let's adapt life story work to kind of suit your situation, which he was all keen about. Obviously, he gave him some information and he kind of knew what he was getting himself into. So we've had um, 10 sessions to date of life story work. Prior to that, I probably had about five sessions individual counselling, but 10 sessions of life story work. And it's actually been fascinating to see how this process has allowed him to kind of explore his relationships and his history of relationships and how that has impacted on his current experience of relationships which is really kind of important if you think about this from an attachment perspective but also it's allowed him to kind of think about his experience of being parented because this is a young man who has children and he's really really wants to be the best father he can be but he's really worried about that as well because his experience of being parented has not been great obviously and he, the alleged perpetrator, not the alleged, you know, the perpetrator of his sexual abuse was his stepfather, who really was his only um, kind of role model for how you father. So he's coming from a very compromised position and he kind of can acknowledge that. Um, so we have kind of focused on, first that we focused on his kind of his mum. Tell me about your mum. And he loves his mum, but he can now see that his mum didn't protect him which is really interesting, I think, and really important, a really important place for him to kind of get to because it was that lack of protection that kind of led to, well, this is his voice, this is not my voice, this is what he's saying, that he can, he kind of feels that lack of protection led to the abuse occurring because his mum was in the home a lot of the time. And so he had a lot of blame about his mum, but he also had a lot of blame about himself. So in being able to kind of explore... The sexual assault history through the kind of life stages and then applying some kind of child development theory to that and some attachment theory to that we also talked a lot about the role of grooming and how really this wasn't about his mum not protecting him maybe it was I mean I don't know I wasn't there but it's also about his mum kind of being groomed by the environment as well and, it, and his mum also being victimized by the perpetrator but in a different way which I think was really, it was kind of hard for him that session when we talked about that because he didn't want to see his mum in that way. I think it was really convenient for him to kind of blame his mum because he kind of blamed himself and he blamed his mum and he didn't really blame the perpetrator because he, he actually loves this man as a father. So it's really, you know, you've got all that stuff that's really apparent in sexual assault kind of intervention around divided loyalties and, you know, all of that stuff. He's got this all going on. But he, he's kind of, you know, the fact that he chose to blame his mum was really easy for him because his mum will love him regardless and he knows that. So she was kind of someone who could be the target of his anger because she, he felt she would always be there for him regardless. 
So being able to kind of explore that she was also a victim really allowed him to get rid of some of that blame and allowed him to see his mum in a very different way, um, which he now tells me he has meant that he has tried to develop this very different relationship with his mum that is kind of based on this kind of honest place of truth, which is very different to what it was based on before, before it was based on punishment and lies, basically. Yeah. So we are in the middle stages, so we have explored the sexual assault history, we have explored his kind of emotions that are attached to that history, we've explored his relationships, as I said before, and we're kind of in an interesting place because it's just going through criminal court now. So he's kind of, you know, really anxious about what's going to happen at criminal court. Is he going to have to see the perpetrator like he's got all that stuff going on? And being able to refer back to previous sessions because it's all being written out and it's all on this paper and he has this kind of visual representation of the stuff that's happened so far, he can kind of pinpoint how he's feeling now and he actually can refer back to how he felt as a child at the same time, which is really good for him because it means that... You know, it gives him the language to explain how he feels. I mean, this is a very vulnerable young man who's had experiences that have meant that he is not probably developed in the way that he wanted to in terms of his psychosocial functioning. So he sometimes needs help with language. And he needs help with kind of emotional um, emotional triggers. And having that kind of visual representation means that we unroll and roll that paper up so many times in a session because he can actually pinpoint stuff and say, that's how I'm feeling now or that reminds me of this, or whatever it is. It gives him back that power over his own story. And so in adapting, in adapting an intervention that was meant for children, yeah, to this man, where, and, and not actually doing part of the intervention, was, which was the attachment focus, because it's just him and I, it means that I kind of am in a bit of a vulnerable situation myself as a practitioner, because... I can't just ethically say that's it, 15 sessions, you're out. Do you know what I mean? And I don't know if he's going to be ready at the end of 15 sessions for this to end. I don't know. I'm always planning, so I always pre-plan where we need to go. It doesn't always work out that way in the sessions because, you know, things happen. Um, But I I plan an end, and I've already planned that end around session 15, so we need to lead up to it from about session 11 onwards to the next one. Um, but I don't know. I don't know, Mim. Mm. It is It is kind of tricky. It's tricky and it's a situation as a practitioner that I need to be able to manage and it's actually teaching me a lot about how to manage that uh, in a proactive way. So how to actually adapt this intervention for adults around very complex situations um, and to do this in the most ethically sa- safe way for the client. Yeah. It's tricky, it's tricky. Thank you everyone for staying with us and uh, thank you to Jody for that um, amazing case study. What did you think, Liz? I agree, it was amazing. So I am... A little bit excited no a lot excited about this cutting edge of therapeutic practice that we just witnessed so Jodi says I I am trying this with adult survivors 
She knows it works with children and their carers. Now she's actually taking a risk and she's trying it with adult survivors. What I find exciting about this, Mim, is that it's the contemporary practice is being portrayed through this podcast virtually instantaneously. We're not having to wait for, you know, Australian Journal of Social Work to kind of produce evidence-based practice two years after the, the fact. Yes. Jody's actually saying, I'm seeing results from this. Um, and it, this practice is actually working with adults. I find that so exciting. And I, I think this well. will appeal to the clinicians in, in our audience. Yeah, I think so as well. I, you're right. It's almost real-time change, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. And I think we, like, I crave more of this. I, and I hear this with my colleagues as well. I want to hear some of the contemporary practice that's happening now. Um, when it's and I happening. Want to, yeah, when it's happening and I want to be able to share that and get feedback from others. I think this is one of the issues we have with social work uh, being grounded in academia is that as wonderful it is for, for the profession in many ways, we do end up in a situation where the only valid productions of our practice is in scholarly journals and then it's after the event. Yes. And we're not actually learning as we go. And as we all know as practitioners, we need to be engaged in a cycle of critical reflection. Absolutely. And I love that Jody is a combination of therapist and academic. Yes. So she's actually sharing what she's learning with her her clients with students um, and now with practicing social workers. Yeah. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. What stood out for you? I'm going to go back to the visual representation, go back to the very long scroll of white paper that the triad is contributing to as they go through this process process of life story work. Um, what I loved in the story was that the young man could actually look back on down the roll of paper and see where his emotional state was at a certain point in time uh, when he was however old and then compare that to himself now mm-hmm. and it's almost it almost works like a mirror an emotional mirror it does doesn't it yeah so he can he can actually go back and say well act, yes my emotions were that then and they remain that now yes or he can say actually they were quite different then and look how far i've come or moved to and mim I so agree with that. What did you think about Jodie's explanation about the intergenerational um, stories of trauma and how important that can be for the client to be able to make sense of some of the behaviour of their parent? Did you have any thoughts on that? Well, often what we know is that children who don't grow up with their grandparents have lost that sense of time right? They don't have the stories. And so the children who grow up with many different generations often have a greater sense of family over time. Um, And an idea that actually they're not alone in their experiences. So I loved the fact that through this process, this young man can look back and he can say, that's what was happening for my grandparents. That's what was happening for my parents. I can understand that experience that they may have been going through. It doesn't, um, it doesn't mean that I excuse their behaviour. It doesn't mean that there isn't um, 
blame to be apportioned or uh, responsibility to be taken but it means that I can understand that story and where that was coming from and I can maybe start to see it in a different way. And I liked her explanation of mother blame. Yes. And why that can occur in therapy because it's a safe space for many clients and I thought the way she explained it really helped me to um, understand why that can be a, a theme in some people's therapeutic processing. Yes. I have to say, Liz, that every time my daughter gets angry at me, I do think that's because you know I'll love you no matter what. Right. Maybe that's not like okay. her. Maybe but, not like her. But, but I love her. But I will love her, right? right? And so it's okay. It's safe to get angry at me. Go for it. Yes. Right? And there's a permission there, I think, when you know that that person is actually going to continue loving you no matter what. Absolutely. Min, the other thing that stood out for me was um, the point that Jodie was making about some of the emotional triggers that occurred for her client and the way she worked with him around languaging that, Mm. finding the language to express what was going on for him when he was being triggered for whatever reason. And it does highlight that, that theme that we have talked about before about how social workers can play an important role in helping people to language. Yes. We What's have discussed that before and I think that's that's a really beautiful example of it, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's actually the, I, the, di- the distance between where we feel something in, inside ourselves and how we're able to express that verbally can be so incredibly great. Yes. Right? That distance can be huge. So to be able to actually give that some words, some structure make that real in a different way for somebody to be able to express. I think that's a real gift. And and it sure is. And it's also a, it's something that he can then use with his own children. So I think that's always interesting that sometimes a trigger for coming into therapy is your own... Um, uh, is becoming a parent. But don't you think that's really normal, Liz? Like Totally normal. You know, before I had kids, I remember thinking about the way I was parented and thinking about whether I would parent in the same way, what I would do differently. I think that is the most normal of experiences. Parenting is one of the life experiences that frames our world, right? Frames our life story. Because we are parented, we think about parenting, we may, may or may not become parents during our lifetime, but we do always relate to children as we grow up. Mm. So reflecting on that, I think is a really, really normal thing. But then when you've actually had a really fractured experience of parenting as a child, it does then create a different lens, doesn't it? Totally. Yeah. And so again, that work that Jodie would be doing with this client around being the better version of himself as a parent is so interesting and I think god she's got a lot of work to do in the five sessions but I'm <laughs> no. you know I'm I'm I mean I'm hopeful that they do get to a point where he leaves feeling like he's being reparented yeah in a way that he can be um yeah the parent that he wants to be with well Jodie did speak about about actually there's an emotional burden they all hold towards the end and I do think there's a fair amount of modeling coming from her in that process that um, there's a not just trust and an unconditional environment that's being structured and set 
but actually possibly in the way that she's communicating in the languaging that she's choosing she's actually providing a blue a new blueprint and a model for him Mm. ah such great work it's powerful work isn't it Mm. yeah 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 I want to say thank you to Jodie Park for um, telling us her story from her practice and uh, letting us into the life story world a little bit as well. I also wanted just to let our listeners know that as as you all know, if you're regular listeners, we do usually keep our social workers anonymous and that's to protect people's identity and to make sure that our social workers are comfortable to tell us the down and dirty stuff that happens in social work uh, that otherwise we really wouldn't be able to hear. But with Jodie, I did ask her if she wanted to be named and uh, she said that she would be happy to be named. I think it's really important, like we've talked about before, Liz, to acknowledge people for their expertise Mm. and the work that they've developed and built up. So um, I really do want to acknowledge the work that Jodie's done and thank her for contributing and um, really hope our listeners get a lot out of that. And take some of it into their own practice even. I'm sure they will. We want to take a moment to thank everyone who has taken time to leave us a rating and a written review on the Apple Podcast app. It does make a huge difference for us in growing our podcast and spreading the work we're doing even wider. We did love this review, Min, from Caitlin iTunes. We did. This podcast is textbook social work but in an easy-to-digest, original and creative format, filled with gems of wisdom from real case studies. This podcast has made me laugh, cry and cringe, often all at once, at the everyday life of social work and this ever-complex field in which we work in. Thank you, Caitlin iTunes. Oh, Caitlin iTunes, we appreciate you. Thank you so much. Happy World Social Work Day. If you would like to help us out, and I'm sure you would because you're social workers, open the podcast app and leave a five-star rating. Again, we're very prescriptive here. A five-star rating and review right now. It will only take a few seconds and it will make a massive difference in getting our work out to more listeners across the world, perhaps even in Bolivia. Perhaps in Bolivia. I'm just thinking, challenge yourself, social workers. Be as articulate as Caitlin iTunes. Oh gee, there's well, and cringe, cry, and laugh. Cringe, cry, and laugh at the same as time as you're writing Liz, the review. As you're writing the I'm review, just that. hit that five star mark with your beautiful writing skills, social workers. Even a emoji thumbs up would be fine for me. But anyway, you can also follow us on Twitter at Social Work Story, Instagram at Social Work Stories Pod, and share a link to our episodes in your Facebook news feed and with your own social work tribe. And I'm sure there's a little bit of social work tribe hugging going on in the next few days, celebrating World Social Work Day. Well, I hope that everyone really enjoys World Social Work Day. Get out there and do hang out with your tribe. Have some of those really important conversations the social workers have. Um, Some hugging. Why not, Liz? I thought you were going to say wine not. Oh, that too. I was going to say share a glass sure, of wine if necessary. The social work Definitely day. after two. all day World Social mm. Work Day events. Definitely. Justin, happy World Social Work Day. Happy World Social Work Day to you as well. Thank you. Ben, happy World Social Work Day. Happy World Social Day. <laughs> and so from the Potters here, we say happy World happy Social World Work Social Day. Happy day, World Social Work Day, everyone. We need a theme. Yeah, we need a song. A World Social Work Day song. For the conga line. See you next time, everyone. Bye. Bye.